This is Dr. Holly Lucille's Mindful Medicine. Here's Dr. Holly Lucille. Well, hello there, mindful listeners. Thank you once again for spending your time with us. This is Dr. Holly Lucille, and I got an episode today that I'm really curious about. It's it's titled Democratizing Cancer. And I'll just come out. I was diagnosed with breast cancer two months ago and had a double mastectomy. And so I'm really interested in talking to our guest, Matthew Zachary. After 10 years of surviving brain cancer at age 21, he's a concert pianist and a composer. He created the first health podcast. He founded a nonprofit called Stupid Cancer, um, which is responsible for igniting a global movement advocating for adolescent young adult cancer programs and support that brought dignity in the face of health adversity. So in 2019, he stepped down from being the CEO of Stupid Cancer, but continues his legacy of building community, galvanizing the patient voice, and blowing up the status quo with his off script, that's off S-C-R-I-P, no T, media, which is the first digital health podcast network focused on patient advocacy, education, and empowerment. Matthew Zachary, thanks for being here. Uh, it's regrettable to welcome you to the club that no one wants to belong to, but we're glad you're here. Yeah. You're family now. <laughs> yes. Oh, my gosh. And, you know, I just am so interested in your work because even me being a naturopathic, you know, licensed naturopathic doctor in practice, um, you know, for over 20 years, uh, I feel like my life has been changed forever, probably almost like yours, because I found just the entire process very, very, and still am finding it difficult to navigate. And I think patient advocacy, when there is such, you know, scary connotated words like cancer, um, and the, the, you know, health adversity that happens when we get diagnosed, it's, I mean, it's incredible. So uh, let's talk about this nonprofit, Stupid Cancer. Tell me about that. Well, I started out as a concert pianist. And then I was given six months to live with brain cancer on my way to grad school to be a film composer. And ah. spoiler alert, didn't die, but couldn't play anymore. So I settled on plan B. When plan B becomes plan A, I wound up being an IT director and moved my way up the ladder on, on the Madison Avenue in creative. And <clears throat> what led me to start the nonprofit was it took me seven years to find a peer, someone who had what I had or similar to what I had and I didn't feel judged by that person and I literally felt like I was the only 20-something that had cancer for, for seven years. He introduced me to this entire like Wizard of Oz behind the curtain group in the Beltway in cancer policy and advocacy. I didn't know what that meant but to me, and again we can talk about this because you're new to the word advocacy in the cancer space, what does it mean to you? It meant to me that I could make it suck less for the next me somehow. There you, you know, go. With an asterisk, whatever somehow meant to that next me. And it, it, there were a lot of really incredibly talented people at that time in policy, research, peer review, patient support, patient education, navigating what it's like. And then, but there really wasn't like a, a loudmouth douchebag behind a microphone. And I felt like I kind of, if I can bleep that out, feel free to bleep that out or retake it. If you retake <laughs> it, I don't care. I've been doing podcasting for 15 years. I, I had the chance. I think to create, it's great. I had the chance to build a brand, to build a brand for Gen Xers in cancer, which was me. So stupid cancer became like the voice of young adult cancer, and someone made the mistake of throwing a microphone 
in front of my face before there was like internet. And it was, I love the word that, I love that, let me say that again. I love that you're bringing back the word radio because I think it's a lost art to call podcasting radio, but it's radio. And I had a live internet radio show in 2007 called The Stupid Cancer Show. And that's what got me into this whole world of scaling a nonprofit with zero experience running a nonprofit. And Stupid Cancer became this phenomenon. Nice. So, okay. Um, you know, it's, it's, what, what, it's what you do, right? So you go through something so traumatic at such a young age, given six months to live. There's a lot of fear. Um, you're so young. I don't even think your brain, even though riddled with cancer, had developed fully yet, perhaps. Oh, hell no. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> and then, but you want to go on and you want to create uh, a world where the next you, it, it doesn't suck as much. And so I love that. Um, and so this podcast with your media company off script, talk to me about the content. What happens there? How can listeners benefit from that podcast? I think it's unique in the sense that it's just unfiltered, no BS discussions about what's wrong with our dumpster fire of a healthcare system from the patient perspective. It isn't a doctor or the FDA or some pharma company or some celebrity. It's people. It's the people's podcast, and I don't see that there's a lot of radio programming out there in the sense of what people actually want to listen to, and that speaks their language, and that's schoolhouse rocked in a way where they kind of can do something by listening to it, something actionable and not necessarily teachable. Right. Yeah. So when you were given the six months to live, like, how did that land on you? Like, how did you take that in? And... What did you do to, to defy these odds? And you're still here today with us. You know, today we say lean in, but back then it was double down. I kind of just felt a little too invincible to believe it was possible that I could die. And that, that's just like the Cro-Magnon, you know, primordial brain before you develop a sense of, you know, when your invincibility genes were off in the mid-20s, I had that. And I genuinely remember never feeling like I was actually going to die and that this was some kind of speed bump that got in my way. And it was a very, very large speed bump that got in my way. But I, I can't speak to whether my, my uh, conscious ignorance of mortality had any play into how the hell I survived or not. But I never felt a dreaded sense of I'm not going to be here. So let's. I want to I talk first about kind of the title of the show that I mentioned up front, D Democratizing Cancer. When, when you mention that, you know, in the pitch, what do, you th what do you think that means, especially to the listeners? What does democratizing cancer, like, really mean to you? Yeah, I want to level set by saying I don't use the word right. I don't believe anything is a right unless it's in the Constitution. I feel that there are liberties and freedoms that we are entitled to when bad things happen to good people. So that's the language that I've been preferring to use for 20 years. And when bad things happen to good people, you're entering a store that you don't want to shop in. You never asked, like, you're in the shit happens cancer store. Welcome to that store. There's no greeter at Walmart to say, go to aisle seven and get this. There's no one protecting you to make sure you're getting the right price for this or this is the best thing for you. You have to develop an objectivity. You, you couldn't free research. So democratizing healthcare means getting those life hacks from people like you who've been there in the past. Now, this is precedented. We look at how Amazon democratized 
purchasing through opinions about books. And now we look at other people's reviews and not have to look at the reviews that were on traditional media back in the day and trust this film critic to tell you that this movie stunk, but Rotten Tomatoes has democratized the way we think about film and movies and engaging in cinematic entertainment. That is finally now crossed the rift into healthcare, where people can get these anecdotal and maybe pseudo-clinical-ish peer-to-peer advice and guidance from their tribe. And that is the democratization of access, choice, and decision-making. So when we talk about this community and we talk about your work, from a logistics perspective, where can people go to one sign up to get that community and get that help and get that peer? Or like me, who could be a peer right now, where can I go to actually take a look and be available for the next me? Right. And this goes back to how you're done shopping in the store and you want to be the greeter for the next person that doesn't want to walk into that store. There are so many myriad ways to take advantage of being a graduate of the cancer universe by joining several nonprofit organizations, whether they're in your space or whether they're, um, you know, sort of these uh, tumor agnostics that care about quality of life or nutrition or mental health or well-being or careers, fertility. Uh, I think there's a difference these days between sharing your story and storytelling around what content means to people from a discoverability perspective. How is someone going to know that you exist now to help them? is the largest conundrum. Where do people learn that there's a podcast for this or a webinar for this or a nonprofit for this? And it really does come down to two major factors. And one is any predisposition that that individual may have towards moxie and chutzpah and gumption to be an advocate. Not many people have that. It's, I think, a unique inherited thing that just comes from nurture. But there are also ways to look at Dr. Google in a good way, as much as we tend to bash on sure. Dr. Google. And this goes back to the emergence of platforms that didn't even exist three to five years ago in the mental health space. And I'm thrilled that they exist now and they're, they're non-threatening, they're self-policing. I think about like Talkspace and The Mighty and not necessarily some of the crazy Facebook groups, but there are ways to find tribes that speak your language that are at your education level and that you can get those life hacks from that can be the greeters that didn't exist three to five years ago. So you, so you talk about joining like nonprofits. So would stupid cancer be one of them? Yeah, there is a lit. I mean, stupid cancer is, is still, I stepped down 18 months ago. It's still there. It's thriving. And stupidcancer.org has a phenomenal, we used to call them, I think like portals or I, I, the old school words like gateways or whatever, it lists a bunch of really, really, it's, it's done the work of distilling down like the top 50 organizations that are worth your time to investigate. And largely for young adults, and I, I mean, I'm an aging Gen Xer at this point, but you know, I don't want people to feel ostracized if they don't feel like they fit into the young adult cancer category. We're all, I'm an alumni at 46 years old of my ah, organization that I started, which ends at 40. But the idea of these aggregators are there now. And it's, I, I would like to lay claim to the fact that it is a lot easier to feel less isolated today than it was 10, 15, 20 years ago. 
Yeah, that's great. Isn't it? Isn't it interesting when you all of a sudden get nudged out of your own demographic that you'd been targeting for so long, and in perhaps the profession or business world, and all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute, where did I go? No relevance anymore. I have aged I'm right outside of your organization. I just filled out the census, and I, I just like, I can't deal with that checkbox. <laughs> well, you know, the other thing that I, I always notice as I age is when you're entering your birthday on something, and you have to scroll to get to the year (laughs) and it's the endless scroll forever it's the endless scroll to 1970 something yes it's so i know i'm like okay where is like and you know i'm so like getting lost in my scrolling that i'm all all the way down to 1933 and i'm like okay 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 i can back up (laughs) way too far way too (laughs) far way too far so you talk a lot about um ending isolation um what is that and what what about this cancer what about cancer is so isolating well, I mean, isolation is just stigma when you're experiencing something that you hadn't planned for. And this goes back to even like um, Alcoholics Anonymous when it started years and years and years ago. There's a certain level of shame and guilt that comes with you feeling like you're the only one going through this. And this happens in rare disease. It happens in cancer. It happens in lupus. It happens in mental health and depression, anxiety. The normalization of something you didn't expect to happen is very welcome and it goes it's it's like steve jobs used to say that never give someone what they expect give them what they didn't know they needed and to the extent that that applies to your feeling judged and isolated and all alone it's it's it can be game-changing to your well-being and your ability to thrive and make better choices to live a better life by knowing you're not alone and I'll, i'll wrap that up in a bun by just saying one of the most ingratiating comments I ever got about stupid cancer was from a 16 year old girl at Hopkins who was on end of life and she said to me I may never want to join your online community or go to your events but it's just so wonderful to know that it's there for me yeah that's great that's I mean in and of itself just knowing, because you know, when you get into this process, I think it's, especially if there's surgery involved or treatment involved, it's the post-treatment, the post-surgery that is, I think is the hardest. You know, it's like, I think up front when a diagnosis happens and there's a lot of scurry and around and there's a predominant feelings and emotions like fear and unknown and anxiety. Um, And then when, when the dust settles from all of that commotion, I think that's probably one of the hardest times for people because it's very distracting you know having something like that it's it's very time consuming it's mind consuming and it's very distracting but then all of a sudden it's over the flowers have stopped coming you know the people have stopped calling and you're left with you know i'm now as you said part of this club that you didn't sign up for and never wanted to be in and it's like how do i prevent a reoccurrence how do i stay on top of my health how do I, um, you know, navigate this post-treatment, post-diagnosis era for myself? Yeah, it's not apples to apples, but you look at postpartum after a childbirth, and you're just so used to having that thing inside you for so long, you don't know what to do that it's not there anymore. And the, it's it's not uncommon to hear that the most terrifying day of dealing with a cancer diagnosis is your last day of treatment because you're kind of cast of the wolves. And unless you happen to be lucky enough to be treated at a, you know, reputable 
major institution that has infrastructure to remind you of things and an app or something modern that keeps you connected to follow-ups and, and resources and they have the support groups. Most people don't have that. So they're, they are kind of left to the wolves to fend for themselves. It's not okay. But this goes back to where are the liberties and freedoms and entitlements you are deserved of to help you figure out how to rehabilitate. And I'm bringing that word back in style. How do you rehabilitate after something traumatic like cancer affects you? Knowing that there's, I think one of the fun words you'll learn is scanxiety. Scanxiety is exactly what it sounds like. You got a scan coming up, you freak out, grab the bottle because that's all you can do. Or don't and figure out what it means to have to live with fear for a certain amount of time. And then, but how is that any different than PTSD? And are there applicable methods of behavior and practice and mindfulness that can help you get to that next finish line? There you go. I mean, I think, you know, as you said, uh, early on, it was doubling down. And right now you're leaning in. And I think that's anxiety <laughs> and leaning into those emotions. And so, so what you're doing, this changing, this ever change, you're, 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 you're learning how an ever changing landscape, um, disrupting this broken system, ending isolation, building community, providing education, redefining quality of life, and improving patient outcomes. It's your mission. It, you, your, your cancer diagnosis became your passion. And it talk about lemon <laughs> and lemonade. <laughs> yeah. It's, 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 it's amazing. Uh, it's, it's wonderful. So what's next for you? I'm hiking Kilimanjaro. No, I'm not. I'm kidding. <laughs> Yeah, because then we would have to do another radio show and talk about yeah. that. <laughs> I don't think we can get, get airwaves up the, at that altitude, but I feel like I've, I, you know, we try to evolve and identify ourselves. I, I have children now; they're ten and a half, and it cha I mean, for me, parenting changed my entire universe. It gave me a very different perspective and on risk and and responsibility. And if there were parents listening, hopefully, lots of nodding heads at this point. And I realized that, you know, I had stepped down from my baby from stupid cancer 18 months ago to figure something out. And I had the liberty of taking some time off to reformulate what that was. And I feel that I want to recapture the energy of not people being angry and pissed off, but giving them permission to be upset that not just bad things happen to good people, but that our system isn't in any way equipped to help anyone do anything because this is our country's dumpster fire. And I'm not necessarily here to solve everyone's problems. I'm here to call them out and convene the leadership that are solving those problems and laypersoning how they're actually doing this through tiny little plugs in the dam that no one really knows about. What are the stories of people getting X and Y done behind the scenes that actually matter? So you can not just have to wake up and be miserably depressed about whatever state our country is in healthcare-wise, but progress actually does happen. So I'm going to ask you one last question here. Um, did you find or have you come across, uh, I mean, cancer is an interesting thing in the medical field as far as I'm concerned, because you go all the way back from the inception of the American Cancer Organization, talk about a nonprofit, and its sole mission was to find a cure for cancer. and. You know, even one of our presidential candidates, I think, said, you know, we're going to find the cure to cancer. I think John F. Kennedy back in the 60s um, mentioned the same thing. And then 
Time Magazine had a, a cover, you know, finally due to cancer dream teams, there's going to be a cure for cancer. But to tell you the truth, you know, as they were talking about COVID deaths in the United States, the only thing that will top the COVID deaths in the United States this year will be cancer and cardiovascular disease. Cardiovascular disease, we know as the primary killer of both men and women. But um, cancer is still up there. There's no cure. <laughs> and um, I, I'm involved in, in something called ANC-AMP, which is the, the, the Association of Integrative Naturopathic Oncologists, that they take, you know, looking at the tumor is extremely important, right? And I think that's what Western oncologists and the cut-burn-poison approach does um, with surgery and chemo and radiation. But I think integrative oncologists and integrative folks like myself tend to look at the, I would say, the terrain, all right? Because tumors don't sort of come on their own. There's, there's, there's a microenvironment and there's things informing them. And so did you ever come across or do you come across people wanting to understand more about prevention, more about lifestyle, more about diet, more about evidence-based uh, ingredients outside of the cut, burn, poison modality, which is important and saves lives, um, but I know also can potentiate cancer stem cells, which are dormant. They can be very creative. They come back later on and have a subsequent uh, malignancy that's always treatment resistant. Um, there's things like uh, OPCs from grapeseed extract, I know, and then also uh, isolated curcumin uh, and and uh, andrographis. Like there's tons of things that have some evidence around um, being able to use less of the cut burn poison and and being able to stop cancer stem cells. So long question, sorry, that is my bad. Um, <laughs> okay. I'm just gonna let you take it from there. <laughs> no, there, there's a lot of answers in there. One of the more uh, George Carlin-ish things I've ever heard is, how do you know prevention actually works? And just try to wrap your head around the answer to that question. Because you never know that prevention actually works because you don't get something, but did you not get it because you prevented something? Like, what does that mean, right? So, so we have to level set just the, the dark comedy in the word prevention, and then weigh that against the fact that, you know, having worked in specifically like Gen X, Millennial, and Gen Z cancers, so few of those are preventable because cancer is largely a disease of the aged and you're going to find more younger people getting sick that are non-smokers with lung cancer that are women who've been vegan and practicing all sorts of health-related athleticisms and you know so so try to parse the two out but then you get to the the conversation like you said of the the battle of science between allopathics and non-allopathics where there's there's a lot of clinical data and evidence, especially in like transcendental meditation. There's decades of research that shows that this actually does so many great things for your body. And then there's non-FDA approved crap of GNC that what does that really do? And then there's stuff in between with experts. So this, again, it goes back to how people perceive what the word cure means to them. And there were drugs that were really, 15 years ago, a drug came out called Gleevec, which basically ended leukemia for a certain strain of leukemia. I think it was CML, chronic myelogenous leukemia. It didn't make the cancer go away. It just put it into like lysogeny, which is a viral term for dormancy. So the cancer is still in your body. It's still slowly moving, eating you away over a longer period of time, but it's not killing you right away. And is that cure? Or is CRISPR now cure? And the, the arguments over designer babies 
that are not going to be born to get leukemia? And is ALL a thing of the past in 30 years? And can we do, does that cure when you manipulate the DNA? I would say not getting it in the first place is pretty good. Or to channel like Fran Drescher, who said stage one is the cure. And how do you mitigate late detection? Which I think makes the most sense in my mind. You know, if, if, if there's any way to get in earlier than stage three or stage four, I don't know if that's a solution for anyone. This will not speak to the meta metastatic community at all. And that is an entirely different show <laughs> to have with you. Right, right. But in the mind's eye of what's good enough right now until some magic pill exists in Star Trek land, I would say early detection for those that it is possible to have is the closest we're going to get to surviving it with the dignity and the equity you deserve to have a productive life through and beyond. Yeah, I um, I agree. I I actually found my own tumor and I had it checked out and by one physician and who completely poo-pooed it and said it, it was nothing. And then I had to listen to my body and I think that's the, the other message that I want the listeners here, just please get a second opinion, which I did and had a biopsy on the spot and was called the very next day. Um, and so really, really important to pay attention, you know, and perhaps stay on top of your, I mean, it's hard these days. I, I know people that are, that haven't gone to the dentist and are leaving their dental health perhaps behind just because of the state of the union and COVID and quarantine and safer at home and all of those things. And it's understandable, but please, 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 um, pay attention. And those, uh, screening tests are, are, are important and, uh, Early detection is, I think, really, really, really kind of smart. Okay, we're wrapping up here, Matthew Zachary. Hey, where, where can people find you? MatthewZachary.com is all about me and my show. And my media company is Offscript Media. As you said, there's no T. It's Offscript.com. All right. Buddy, thank you so much for sharing your experience and for graduating and being an alumni and still kicking butt out there. We appreciate it. Mindful listeners, I appreciate you. Thank you for being here, and we're going to see you next time.